Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Our plan is to finish the, the 12th chapter of Matthew today, and then we will begin chapter 13, which is where many, of, uh, many famous parables of Jesus come. I've mentioned before that in this moment in Jesus' life and ministry, uh, there is mounting opposition. At the same time, there are those who deeply love the Lord, and Jesus keeps putting these, uh, these options on the table. Will you receive or will you reject me? And he has serious warnings for those who reject, but he has incredible promises of blessing for those who do receive and follow him. Uh, I've titled the sermon, A Return of a Demonic Spirit, one of the stranger uh, parables that Jesus told and always been intriguing to me. And the subtitle or the, the part underneath the title would be The Evil of an Empty Religious Life. And I've got three points. I'll go ahead and tell you the points now, and then we'll read the passage, and you can sort of see where I'm getting these from. And just so you know, not to confuse you, uh, I'm going to go out of order with the way the text is presented, just so you know. So uh, Jesus instructs us to see three things in our passage today. The first thing is this. Jesus instructs us to see uh, empty orderly religion, empty orderly religion as an invitation to the demonic. An astonishing point there, verses 43 to 45. Point two, Jesus instructs us to see wholehearted, obedient disciples as Christ's true family, verses 46 to 50. And point number three, Jesus instructs us to see himself as the greater Jonah and Solomon we all need. So let me read the passage for us. It's Starts Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38 to the end of the chapter. And again, this is the word of the Lord. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I do ask for clarity as we read this text. There's a whole lot happening in this passage, and some of it is somewhat perplexing to us, I think. And so 
I do pray for us to be able to see the relatively straightforward meaning once we get past some of the difficulties of what is being said here by the Lord, and I pray that we would take the warning of this text seriously and that we would heed it and that we would follow the Lord as a result of this. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me uh, just sort of big picture. These points are a little hard to hold together. They're, they're, uh, I'm trying to put it all together. Jesus is saying, our life needs to be full of Him and His Spirit, and we need to have a life that's been transformed by Jesus, and a life that is therefore following God's will, not perfectly, but truly beginning to follow God's will and obey. And the people who have that are His true family members, His true brothers and sisters in Christ, and they have nothing to fear. But those who reject Jesus, and they don't allow Jesus to indwell them and to fill them by His Spirit, and they reject obedience to the Lord, they have much to fear for their future. That's sort of the overview of what's happening here. I want to start with my first point. Jesus instructs us to see, number one, empty orderly religion as an invitation to the demonic. And I want to start with verse 38 and 39 just to set the scene, and then we'll jump forward and we'll come back to the end to the section about Jonah and Solomon. Verse 38 again, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Jesus, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been paying attention to this chapter and the chapters leading up to it, um, has Jesus failed to provide evidence that he is God in the flesh? Has there been a shortage of evidence so far in the, in the Gospel of Matthew? Uh, no. Jesus has healed numerous people. The man with the withered hand. Uh, he has cast the demon out of a man who was mute and deaf. If you glance back at chapters 8 and 9, uh, which we covered some of those in the summer with Greg and Scott preaching, if you look at that, he heals a leper. He, uh, he heals the centurion's servant. He heals many. Uh, he heals two men with demons. He calms a storm with his word. He heals a paralytic who's lowered through the ceiling. Uh, Mark tells us more of the details there. Uh, he forgives. He transforms people's life. He even uh, heals a woman with a 12-year disease. He also uh, raises a young girl who was 12 years old back to life. He heals two blind men. He heals another man unable to speak. Has Jesus provided sufficient evidence? It's abundantly clear. This is not just anybody. This is a man with divine uh, authority. And yet, what do the Pharisees say after all this? Months and months and months of miraculous signs. What do they say? You've got to give us a big sign to prove that you really are who you say you are. And here's what I'll say. I think this is what Jesus would say. Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'm going to do a little miracle for you to prove that I am who you want me to be. I'll, I'll do that. Jesus says, what you're saying right now sounds pious, and it sounds godly, and it sounds sincere. They even call him uh, teacher. We wish to see a sign. It sounds respectable. But Jesus knows, under the surface, their desire for another sign is not the healthy sign of faith struggling to believe. It is the hardened evidence of a heart that is turned off to Jesus and will not accept anything that he provides. You see, just give us one more sign means nothing will ever be enough to satisfy us. That's what this means in context. And in the parallel, in both Mark and Luke, they actually give the same story and they add this detail. They ask this question, quote, to test him. This is not a sincere question. This is, this is done as an, in an effort to test Jesus. It is not coming 
from sincere hearts. And we know that because Jesus says, okay, I'm not giving you a sign like you want. I'm just going to give you one sign, and it's going to be my resurrection from the dead on the third day. That will be the one sign that will provide full and sufficient evidence that I am who I claim to be, and that will be the sign set over human history for thousands of years. If you want to know, is Jesus the man He claimed to be, here's one question to ask. Did He rise physically, bodily, literally from the grave after being dead, after being crucified on a Roman cross? That's the question. And I've said this before. I teach an apologetics class in high school. I say this every year. I say it's like dominoes. If you, put, you set up all those dominoes, right, as a kid, and you have them going in different directions, and then the cat comes in and knocks them over, and you're, ah, it took me hours. So imagine you have all these dominoes set up, and imagine you got a domino in the middle. If you turn this domino this way, all those dominoes fall that way. And if you turn the domino this way, all the dominoes fall that way. Here's the simplest way to say it. When it comes to Christianity, there's one basic fundamental question. It's this question. Did Jesus of Nazareth, the historical man who lived in Nazareth, after he died on a Roman cross, did he rise to new physical, bodily, literal life again? And is he alive today literally, bodily, at the right hand of God the Father, coming again one day to judge the world? Or is he still dead somewhere in the Middle East? 1 Corinthians 15 that I read a, a bit from a moment ago, Scripture itself in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Jesus is still dead, to paraphrase Paul, Christianity is dead with Jesus. But if Jesus has risen to new life, then Christianity is alive and well, and all that Jesus taught and said is true, including all that Scripture teaches. It's all, it all comes down to the bodily resurrection. Jesus says, okay, here's the sign. You want a sign? I'll give you one sign. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'm going to rise from the dead, and that will be the sign. And here's what we find out. Evidence is not going to be… If you're looking for just… If, if all it is is evidence that you're looking for, but your heart is not submissive to the Lord… Even a resurrection will not, will not convince you because you remember what Jesus said in Luke 16, an amazing verse? Remember the parable, don't get, don't, I, don't, I don't want to lose everybody here, parable the rich man and Lazarus. He talks about Lazarus as a poor believer who goes to be with Abraham in paradise after death. Do you remember this story? And the rich man who was an unbeliever dies and goes to Hades, a place of fire and torment. Do you remember? And they talk across the chasm to Abraham. And the, 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 the man who's in Hades, in torment, awaiting the final destination of hell after the resurrection, he is in torment, and what does he say? He says, please, Abraham, send Lazarus, send someone back to my… I have five brothers who are still alive. Send someone back from the dead to convince them not to come to this place of torment. Do you remember the incredible verse Jesus puts at the end that Abraham says back to the man in torment? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They, if they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if a man comes back from the dead. That is an amazing statement when it comes to evidence. The person who says, yes, 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 but I want more, I want more, I'm never satisfied with what the Lord has provided, I'm going to start to wonder, deep down, is there an unwillingness to believe, a desire not to believe? Or are we going to be submissive and say, no, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I want, to, I, I, if there's a struggle, you say, Lord, I, I believe, help me to believe more fully. And Jesus says, the sign is my resurrection from the dead. So that's the setting. And Jesus rebukes the, the Pharisees, and he says, he compares them as being worse than to one group, one individual. The Ninevites, right? The Ninevites will condemn you guys, and the Queen of Sheba. If you know your Old Testament, the Ninevites that Jonah preached to, remember Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which was the number one enemy of Israel for centuries. So they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and you guys aren't repenting at the preaching of the Son of God Himself. And secondly, 
the Queen of Sheba, a pagan queen from a part of South Africa, she travels 1,500 miles to meet Solomon and is blown away by Solomon. And yet you guys are unwilling to believe in the greater than Solomon, the true son of David standing before you? You see, Jesus is, is very strong in his rebuke. Now let's move to the, to, to the, to the issue here of the, of the unclean spirit, which continues this point. Look at this. This is one of the most fascinating and strange parables I would, I would assert that Jesus ever told. Verse 43. I'm going to read it again. If you're not used to this parable, and even if you are, just look carefully at what Jesus says and try to discern what it means. Verse 43, when the unclean spirit, that's a demon, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finding none. Then it says, so let me just stop there for a second. Demons are often associated with waterless places. There's different texts that refer to this. Um, It finds no rest, meaning it can wreak no havoc in uninhabited places. The demon wants to be influencing people for evil, and as long as it's away from people, it's, it's restless. It wants to get back and influence people for harm. What? Okay, verse 44. So now the demon is speaking. Then it says, the demon says, I will return to my house from which I came. I'll pause there. Do you see how the house he's referring to is a person? right? Because he just left the person. He says, I want to go back to my house. So the house is the person. The demon sees a per- the demons see people like houses, places to be inhabited, places to influence, places to visit, places to go and to wreak havoc on individuals. Keep, let's keep going. Verse 44. Then it said, I will return to my house from which I came, the person. And when it comes, it finds the house, the person, and this is important, empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. Seven is what? The number of completion, perfection. So the demon gets the full number of demons. So now you're going to get seven plus the one. You've got eight spirits coming, seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. They're in that house. And the last state of the person is worse than the first so also will it be with this generation. Now, that is, a, is that at, least, at the very least an intriguing par- parable? What, what is going on here? Well, the, the meaning may not be that hard for you to see as you look at it. It's, it's, it becomes pretty evident when you stop to think about this. And I think this is, a, I, I think this is an astonishingly frightening thought. So I'm just going to try to be as close to the text as I can. You can measure if you think what I'm saying is is true to this text. Here's what I think the picture is. You have a person. We don't know anything about the person at the start. There's a person who has a demonic spirit in some way influencing this individual. And for one reason or another, we don't know why, the demon leaves. Now, there could be different ways to look at this. Commentators have different things. I think that whichever scenario is being referred to explicitly, the application is very broad. So let me just give you some options. It could be referring to Galilee in general, the area where Jesus has been for a couple of years, has Jesus cast a lot of demons out of the cities of Galilee? By the hundreds and by the thousands, he cast a legion out of one man. So has Jesus, Jesus cast thousands, maybe tens of thousands of demons out of this area. Has the demon left the house in a sense? Has, has Jesus cast a lot of demons out of Galilee? Yes. And now what's the million dollar question? Now that Jesus has been present, preaching and at work and casting out demons in this area for a few years, the question is this, How are the people going to respond to Jesus in the long run? Do you see? 
That could be one application, this generation. There's others, but let's, let's even think as an individual, because certainly it's going to apply at the individual level because the story is about an individual. So let's, let's think about this. An individual person has some sort of demonic presence in his life, her life, and the demon leaves. And the demon returns and finds the house, look at the end of verse 44, empty, swept, and put in order. Empty, swept, and put in order. And the demon thinks, this is perfect. Now, I just thought about those words, empty, swept, and put in order. So when the demon returns, this house does not have Jesus or the Holy Spirit living in that house. It's empty. That's the most important word in the whole, in the whole story, I think. This, the house is empty. The person's life does not have Jesus at the center. The Holy Spirit is not present. But guess what else is present? Morality is present in this person's life. The house is empty. There's no Jesus. But number two, what? The house is swept and put in order. I don't think that, I mean, this is one of the more frightening parables when you think about it like this. Jesus is saying, it is possible to be religious, to be devoutly religious. It is possible to be a church-going person your entire life. It is possible to keep all the outward religious rules. It's possible to be an upstanding person. It's possible that you could win employee of the month every month your whole life. You could, be, you could have all the awards and accolades. You could be the person everyone looks to as, you, I want to be more like that individual. I want to be like him or her when I grow up. I want to be like that person. You could be just like that outwardly. All your stuff is together. Your house is in order. It is swept. It is put together. Everything looks squeaky clean. But if Jesus the living Savior, is not present by His Spirit at the center of our life. And if Jesus, by His Spirit, is not the motivating center of our life, if He is not the one animating us and working through us and filling us and and transforming our affections by His grace, if it's just at the center empty without Christ, you know, you've made a great home for the demonic. Demons love it when they can find a religious person who says all the right things outwardly, is devoid of the Spirit inwardly. The demons love this person. They say, this is my favorite kind of person. These are the kind of people, by the way, who would end up murdering Jesus. They are swept, well put together, outwardly moral, but they don't love Jesus. And at the end of the day, their hatred of Him comes out in the most violent way when Jesus is crucified. Because it is the religious leaders who have an empty, well-kept, swept house who call out, crucify, crucify Him. That's the group. That's That's where this leads. So Jesus is saying, beware of an empty, swept, orderly religious life. I think we can apply this in different ways. So don't, don't miss, I, I, you, you catch certain things. So, so look back, empty, swept, and put in order. Empty parallels the last sentence of verse 44. Look at the last sentence. So also will it be with this, what? Evil generation. So I, I just write down, empty equals evil. I don't think I'm making that up out of this text. Jesus says, a person who is well-ordered and moral, but is empty of Jesus, that person, Jesus says, is an evil person. That's an evil generation. So Jesus judges people not by how orderly their life is and how well things are put together. The question is, is your life empty of Jesus or is your life increasingly filled with the person of Christ taught in Scripture? That is the acid test. Let me just quote a few uh, Christians here. Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle. I'll quote just, just, just listen to a few quotes. Spurgeon says this, this situation is a case which frequently occurs. The devil does, uh, in, in, does in this way leave the madly immoral, the highly immoral to become decent and orderly. 
J.C. Ryle, their consciences become seared. None proves, listen to this, no one proves so hopelessly wicked as those who, after experiencing strong religious convictions, have gone back again to sin and to the world. It is a good thing to strive to cast sin out of our hearts, but let us take care that we also receive the grace of God in its place. Spurgeon, it is true that the house is swept from certain grosser sins and garnished with some pretty moralities, but the Holy Spirit is not there, and no divine change has been wrought, and therefore the unclean spirit is as much at home there as ever he was. Spurgeon continues, reformations, like changes of your life, reformations, which are not the work of conquering grace, are usually temporary and often lead up to a worse condition in later years. Why would the last state of this person be worse than the first? Why is it if they get morality but not Jesus, they are worse off at the end? Why? And I think the answer is moral people are pretty self-satisfied. You go, okay, I used to have some really bad habits when I was younger. There were even some embarrassing things that people knew about. It made me look bad. Okay, I I got those taken care of. I I cleaned those things up. Those things have been removed, right? Those habits have been dealt with in one way or another. And now I've sort of pulled myself up. I've got my, my life more in order. Things are swept and well put together. Jesus is not at the center, but my life is put together. People who feel like they've got their act together are not desperate candidates for grace. They're not the people who crawl out, please, God, save me, rescue me from the, from the depths of their heart. That's not what happens. The people who feel self-satisfied about their moral state are the least likely to call out to God for grace. It is not enough to put off the old. We have to also put on the new. And this is all throughout Paul's letters. He doesn't just say put off sin. He says put on Christ. And to be left putting off sin but not putting on Christ is to make yourself a breeding ground for the demonic. That's what Jesus says. Romans 13 says it like this. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." I just want to mention here, this was interesting to me. It was, it was relatively, I think it was a new insight for me. That phrase, the last state of that person is worse than the first. There are three Greek words, the word for last state, the word for worse, and the word first. Three Greek words, almost all the Greek words, most of those were three of the key Greek words are used identically by Peter, the apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2, when he says, listen to this, he describes someone who's similar to this story. Peter must have learned this from Jesus. Listen to what he says. If this is an individual who got religion and then left. Listen to what he says. For if after having escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. You hear that? The last state has become worse for them than the first. Almost the exact words of Jesus. For if for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them what the true proverb says has happened to them The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, the the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I know I've mentioned this text before. I'm going to mention it one more time. I've told this before. The, The pig. The pig has a nature that prefers to be dirty than clean. And even though you can clean a pig up temporarily, the pig is not going to stay clean because the pig's nature, like gravity, it's going to go back to what it loves. Where is the pig at home? 
in that dirty mud puddle over there. That's, that's where the pig is at home. There, there are people who can go through an outward moral transformation of their life, like the pig who is cleaned up, and they look nice and presentable, but if their nature has not been changed by Christ coming in to take over and to be the one ruling from the throne of someone's heart and life, if that has not happened, then the nature has not changed, and inevitably, the pig who loves the mud is going to end up back in the mud again one day, and the last state of that person will be worse than the first. So here's the question. Has there been a change of nature in your life? Has there come a time where the Lord Jesus has become the one you truly love? Your affections and desires are transformed? I was just watching last night. I saw a video, Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry, former ministry. They have uh, videos they put up, I guess, once in a while of testimonies of people who are connected to their ministry. And they've got some great ones. But I, I watched one, and they're short, four or five minutes long. There was a man who, when he was in his 20s, I guess, he was involved in drug uh, dealing. Uh, he said he got, he got the, the federal government got involved. He was dealing such, uh, so many drugs at this time. He, he, he was driving his car in the video, and he points. He goes, okay, this apartment complex, I was standing right over here when I was shot at on more than one occasion when I was dealing drugs. He, he's talking about all this. He got caught. He, he faced 13 years in prison. He talks about that time in prison. He says, while in prison, everyone told him, Turn to God. Turn to the Bible. He's like, I didn't turn to God. I didn't open my Bible. I didn't want anything to do with that. I've never opened a Bible in my life. And then guess what? The desperation started to increase in prison. And finally, he had a former, I think a girlfriend of his from many years ago, she contacted him and she said, you should read, I love this part of the story, you should read the Gospel of John. He said, no, I didn't know anything about the Bible, so I accidentally read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, not the Gospel of John. He said, I didn't know what John was, so I flipped my Bible, I found 1st John. And he said, I'm reading the wrong book. She told me to read the other book. She said, he said, I started reading 1st John in a moment of desperation around prison time, and I think it was right before he went to prison. I think this may have been right before he went to prison. And he started reading that. He said, he read 1st John, and he said, all of a sudden, he said, I didn't know what I was reading. I said, I saw these two verses. I saw the verse, God is love. He said, that verse blew me away. I got to say, that moved me because I'm so used to the phrase, God is love. I often don't, I'm not often staggered by it. This guy was overwhelmed, but he couldn't believe it was in the Bible. God is love. He thought, that's amazing. And then a few verses later, 1 John 4, this is the love of God that he gave his only son. He's the propitiation, the one who takes away God's wrath against our sin for us. He said, I was blown away. And then this is what he said. He said, my desires, he said, suddenly my desires started to change. And he said, I knew something has happened to me. And he said, I went to prison and he started ministering to other guys in prison. He said, uh, he, he, when he got there, he thought you could lose your salvation. And then someone gave him an R.C. Sproul book and he realized, actually, you can't lose your salvation. And he had this whole transformation in prison. But the whole point is this, his life was transformed. He went from loving sin to now loving righteousness. Not perfectly, but truly a transformation had taken place. And Jesus had taken up capacity, had taken up, uh, had taken up residence in, in the home of his life. All right, let's move to point number two. Jesus instructs us to see wholehearted, obedient disciples, wholehearted, obedient disciples as Christ's true family. Verses 46 to 50. Let's read those again. Verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is not disparaging his family. We know at this point his brothers were not believers. That's abundantly clear. John 7, his brothers did not yet believe in him. But we know that after his resurrection, 
James is suddenly a believer, and soon afterwards, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. What happened? Jesus met James, resurrected after his death, before his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says it, and that's what I'm sure that's what transformed James' life. It was a complete radical conversion. He ended up being martyred in Jerusalem in 62 AD, about 30 years later, faithfully serving the Lord all the way until then. Jesus is not disparaging his family. What he's, what he's doing is something amazing. He's not pushing his family down. He's raising his spiritual family up, and he's saying... You know, it's funny, I heard MacArthur say on this, he said, uh, John MacArthur said, uh, it could have been a little embarrassing, you know, Jesus is out there, he's he's an adult, he's out there working wonders, he's preaching with authority, he's casting out demons, and suddenly it's like, uh, your your mother's here to see you, Jesus. (laughs) She's outside with your your brothers and your sisters are here, you need to go talk to them. And Jesus says what? He doesn't disparage them, he doesn't, he loves his family, he cares deeply about them, but what does he say? If you want to truly be in my family, there is a way to do that through adoption, right, that we learn. If you turn from sin and trust in Christ, if you trust in me, I take away your sin, I provide your forgiveness, and I adopt you. The Father adopts you through the Son, right? Ephesians 1, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ. He adopts us into His family, and suddenly we can say, we, fallible, fallen, frail, sinful people that we still are and struggle with, we can say, Jesus is my older brother. God is my Father by the sheer mercy and grace of God. So Jesus is redefining his family and saying, if you want to be in my family, it's open to anyone. It's not just Mary. It's not just James and Jude and on and on. No, no, no. Anyone on earth who will simply trust in me and follow the will of my Father, you can be my mother or my brother or my sister. You notice he does not say, or my father. (laughs) He leaves that reserved for God the Father. But he says, you can be in my family. And that's what we are as brothers and members of churches, as the followers of Christ, we are brothers and sisters. I love that. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and Christ is our older brother. He is the one who, as Hebrews says, not ashamed to call us brothers. That's amazing. Hebrews 2, and if I was Jesus, I'd be ashamed of a lot of us, right, of me in my, in my earthly life, but Jesus is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to, to be identified with us. He says in Hebrews 2, quoting Psalm 22, I will tell of your name among my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises, and it says he partook of flesh and blood. He had to be made like his brothers in every way, so he took on true humanity so he could die in our place and rise for our justification. And don't miss here the will, those who follow the will of my Father who is in heaven. You think of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will, Father, be done, right? We, we, we got to follow His will. Think of later, the transfiguration. God speaks from heaven. Remember Moses, Elijah, Jesus, Peter, and the others. What is the Father's will? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now, just note, spoil, spoil a sermon for the future here, real quick. Moses and Elijah are present when the Father says, listen to Him. You ever thought about that? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Elijah is the, one of the first great prophets after Moses. These are big figures in the Old Testament. And when the father looks down, he doesn't say, listen to them. He's not minimizing what Moses wrote. It's inspired by God, not minimizing what Elijah did. It was God's very word. But what does he say? Listen to my son. Listen to Jesus. He puts Jesus above all others, and he says, listen to him. So do we listen to and follow Jesus? Are we following in his path? And just, just so you know, Jesus, of course, follows his own advice here. In Gethsemane, his true humanity faces the temptation to flee the garden. And what does he say? 
It says, again, Matthew tells us, for the second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus is not asking you to do something he is not fully willing to do. He, he does the will of his father. All right, let's move to point number three, and we're going to go back to the beginning of our text. So point number three, Jesus instructs us to see number three, himself as the greater Jonah and Solomon, we all need. Let me reread a few verses here. Look at verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. But don't miss, this is an amazing insight that uh, somebody I was reading pointed this out. In this chapter, Jesus has called himself greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, and earlier in the chapter, greater than than the temple. Remember something greater than the temple is here? So think about that. Um, when it comes to Jonah, that's a prophet. So Jesus is the, great pro- the greater prophet. Solomon's a king. Jesus is the greatest king. And the temple is connected to the priesthood. Jesus is saying, I'm the true and better priest. Prophet, priest, and king. I am the true and better prophet. I'm the true and better priest. I'm the true and better king. That's in me. That, that is where you come to find all those things. We need a prophet to speak God's truth to us. Without God's truth, we're going to be blind. We're just guessing at what we think is true. We need a prophet. That's Jesus. He's greater than Jonah. Number two, we need a king who can subdue the world in justice, who can bring about God's justice and can bring about a a renewed creation and resurrect us from the dead. That's a king that Jesus is, greater than Solomon. And number three, he's greater than the temple, which means he offers his own blood as sacrifice, as priest. He can bring us into God's very presence by grace. We need a true and better temple and priesthood that we find in Jesus. Now, let's just spend a moment here. Solomon the wisest man who had ever lived. He asked for wisdom, and the Lord gave him abundant wisdom. People were astonished by his wisdom, and Proverbs is full of it. And Jesus says, I'm greater than the wisest man who ever lived because I am wisdom incarnate. I am wisdom personified. I am the very wisdom of God. But I want to spend a moment here talking about Jonah. And before I do that, let me just mention something as almost an aside, but I think it's important. I had a former student email me a couple days ago, or earlier this week, and he's taking a religion class taught by a secular professor, which I always tell people not to do, but but, uh, it happens. And uh, the secular professor is teaching on Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, and trying to undermine the Old Testament, trying to undermine parts of Genesis and Exodus. It's kind of routine stuff if you're familiar with what, what happens. So trying to undermine the book of Exodus in particular and certain other things. So this former student emailed me with a whole long email of all the things the teacher said and what I thought about them. And so I sent some stuff back. I sent some Christian archaeologists who had counter responses to what he said. So I sent back a number of arguments. Okay, what you can think about this with the city of Jericho. Look at this PhD archaeologist who's given this argument. I gave a number of things. But I said, listen, at the end of the day, I'm not going to hang my hat on what the latest findings of an archaeologist say. Because archaeologists, I love them, I'm thankful for them, they are all fallible. They all get things wrong. I am not going to judge God's infallible word by fallible archaeologists. I'm not going to do it because that's putting the incredible 
untouchable Word of God on a faulty foundation that is flawed. I'm not going to base why I believe in the Bible based on fallible conclusions of fallible people. I'm not going to do that. I believe the Bible because I believe the Bible ultimately is God's self-authenticating Word, and God bears witness to it by His Spirit through the illumination of God's Spirit. But I said this to my former student. I said to him, I said, listen, like I said at the beginning, I want to kind of come back to, to the point I was making at the beginning. Everything stands or falls on Jesus and His resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, we can trust everything he said. And I, I've read this before. I want to quote this. Does Jesus believe that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish? Yes. He believes that's literal history, not mythology. Does he believe the queen of Sheba literally traveled 1,500 miles to meet the literal man Solomon? Yes. He literally believes those things happened. Does he believe that there were actual Ninevites who actually repented at the preaching of an actual Jonah and that those actual Ninevites will actually rise up at the last judgment and condemn the Pharisees of his generation? Yes. He takes that as historic, literal fact. There's no embarrassment. There's no second guessing. He's not red in the face when he says this. There is no hesitation to affirm even the strangest parts of all Old Testament narratives as being literal, factual, historical, and true. You get that? He also just, so let me quote Kevin DeYoung. This is a great quote. I sent this to my student. Quote, Kevin DeYoung says, in the gospels, we see Jesus reference Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaac and Jacob, manna in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, Moses as the lawgiver, David and Solomon, the queen of Sheba, Elijah and Elisha, the widow of Zarephath, Naaman, Zechariah, and even Jonah, never questioning a single event, a single miracle, or a single historical claim. Jesus clearly believed in the historicity of biblical history. It is impossible to revere the scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. That is well said. J.C. Ryle says this, let us remember this. If we hear men professing to believe the writers of the New Testament and yet sneering at the things recorded in the Old Testament as if they were fables, such men forget that in so doing they pour contempt upon Christ himself. These are not unimportant points in this day. Let them be well fixed in our mind. Here's how it all boils down. Jesus has not left us. I want you to hear me, especially those who struggle with this. Jesus has not left us with insufficient reasons to believe that he is the resurrected son of God. He has left us abundant witnesses, including eyewitness testimony and his own word to, to give us reason to believe he literally rose from the dead, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so we must trust in him. We must believe him. The question is, are we willing, here it is, are we willing to change our life and repent of the sins that Jesus calls sin and the Bible calls sin in order to follow the Lord. I think at the end of the day, one of the things that holds us back, a lot of our questions are smoke screens for the fact that I want to live my life the way I'm living it, and I don't want Jesus to interrupt my life. That is a very unpleasant thought to many of us, and yet by God's grace, we must be convinced that living for the Lord Jesus and Him alone is the best thing in the world for me because I was made for Him and I will be restless, Augustine said, until I find my rest in Him. We must trust in the Lord. And I'll wrap up with this point here about Jonah. Our kids, we were having devotions a few weeks ago, and we read Jonah 1. It's always a, it's always a winner with the kids. Jonah chapter 1, you can't beat that. So we're reading Jonah chapter 1. And I, I love to do this, and I recommend, if you haven't done this in a while, you could, you could jot this down and do this later on. Jonah 1 and Mark chapter 4. Just, just jot those two things down. Jonah chapter 1, Mark chapter 4. And I, we went with my kids. We flipped back and forth, and we looked, compared them. And I think it's one of the most astonishing parallels you can find. So here, I'll just give it to you, and then I'll pray for us. There's amazing similarities, but massive differences between those two chapters. Here's what you see. In both texts, do you have... Uh, seasoned sailors on a boat during a storm. Yeah, Jesus and Jonah. 
In both cases, is there a prophet of God who is asleep during a storm? This seems to be quite similar. In both stories, do the seasoned sailors wake the guy up who's the prophet and beg him for help? Don't you care that we're perishing? Or what did you do to your God that's offended your God, etc., right? In both stories, the prophet of God, and Jesus is far more than a prophet, but in both cases, the prophet of God stands up and has an answer to the storm. And in both cases, the prophet solves the storm. The storm goes completely quiet, and the sailors rejoice. In both texts, the sailors are also more afraid after the storm stopped than while the storm was going. Is this just a coincidence? No, Mark is intentionally taking the historical story and shaping it in the mold of the story of Jonah to make a point. What is the point? The point is to highlight the similarity, but also the primary difference between the two stories. Here's the primary difference. You know it, but I'll say it for you. Jonah is in rebellion against God, running from God, and the storm is God's disciplinary judgment against Jonah. Jesus is sinless. The storm is not God's discipline against Jesus. But when that storm strikes, how do they solve the storm? Jonah says self-sacrifice. It's my fault. If you throw me in, the storm will stop. I'll die, he thinks. I'm going to be gone, but you guys will live. And they tried to row hard to get back. They couldn't do it. They said, Yahweh, forgive us. They throw him in. The fish swallows him. The storm stops. Jesus does not get thrown into the storm. I remember one time hearing a preacher on this point. I just couldn't believe it. He said, Jesus was not thrown into the storm. And he stops. He says, or was he? See, Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's wrath. That's why Jesus compares his time on the cross and his burial with Jonah's time getting thrown into the sea. Because Jesus says, listen, the ultimate storm of God's wrath is God's just fury against my sin and yours. And God owes a righteous storm to break out upon all of us. And Jesus says, I will be hurled, even though I am innocent, I will be hurled like Jonah into the heart of the storm of God's wrath on the cross. And I will be, I will die under God's wrath. I will finish absorbing God's wrath. I'll drink the cup dry. I will be buried three days, and I will raise again from the dead, triumphing over everything as a perfect, as Jonah being a perfect foreshadowing of what I would accomplish. But I am far greater than Jonah, and I offer a salvation that Jonah could only, could only see by shadow form. I will offer you what only, what, what, the only thing that can solve the problem of God's judgment and the need for salvation. So if you haven't already, will you consider right now in this moment, will you turn from living life by your own rules? Even if it's a moral life, and your life looks pretty well kept, swept, put together, but empty of Jesus, devoid of Jesus. Will you, right now in this moment, will you repent? Will you say, Lord, forgive me for trying to live life my way by my rules. Help me be willing to live for you in, in obedience with your Father's will. Please come into my life. Get rid of anything in the way that might be demonic or evil or wrong. Get rid of it and fill my empty house with your spirit. Give me new desires, new longings, and new loves, and help me to, for the first time, enter by adoption into your family so that I can be a brother and sister of all believers in Christ and Christ my elder brother. So let's bow our heads together. I'll give you a moment to pray silently, and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are thankful that you sent your Son into the world to take the place of all sinners who will turn and trust him. I pray that the true and better Jonah, the Lord Jesus himself, would capture our attention and our affection and that you would fill 
our lives with you, with, with your spirit, with, with your uh, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would humble us, show us that we cannot live life by our own rules, that that leads a path to destruction. It may feel good in the, in the short run, it always leads to destruction. Humble us, God. Make us willing to believe. Give us tender hearts. Give us great confidence in what Christ has done. And wash away our sins. Give us that new life that only Christ gives. And help us, God, to be part of your true family. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.